0: everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: And I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. My great colleague Naomi is not only a senior fellow at AEI, she's also a writer, and author of several books, and we're really excited, Naomi. Congratulations that you have a new book that is coming out on October 5th. And it is called No Way to Treat a Child.
0: Yes, I am very excited. This has been kind of a long time coming. I've been I sort of came to AEI with the express purpose of working on the topic of child welfare. And as regular listeners to our podcast know, this is a topic that I have gone around the country reporting on and writing about in various publications. And now this book kind of represents everything that I have found out and everything that I think about the child welfare system.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, the the subtitle is how the foster care system, family courts and racial activists are wrecking. That's some strong language. But before we get into the the details of the book, which is just, you know, just great substantive work, just just size the problem for us. Like what? Just. What is going on? Like what's the scale of the problem? Like, you know, what's the average age that kids are even getting into foster care? How many kids? Just give a sense and then we'll we'll get into what some of the sort of underlying ideologies are that are driving some of these negative outcomes. And then thankfully, we can also talk about some ideas you have for rectifying the situation.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that's important to understand is that the child welfare system is bigger than just foster care. I think a lot of people sort of equate the two. But the child welfare system, of course, begins when there is a report that a child has been mistreated. And we have about, in this country, 800,000 substantiated reports a year of maltreatment. That could be kids who are being physically abused, sexually abused or severely neglected. And those are the those are the kids who are reported, and we have reason to believe that those reports are accurate. Then we have about, about 440,000 kids who are actually in the foster care system. That's kind of a snapshot in time. Over yeah. the course of a year, about 600,000 kids are involved in foster care. But if you just sort of looked at it, let's say today, you would say about 440,000 kids are in the foster care system. Some of those kids are being taken care of by Relatives and some of those kids are being taken care of by non-relatives. Another important number is about a quarter of the kids in the foster care system are actually eligible to be adopted, which is to say that their parental rights have been terminated or they're in the process of being terminated. And so those are kids who are in desperate need of a permanent family. When you look at the ages of kids, the, the ages at which kids are typically kind of first involved in the child welfare system. That tends to be younger kids who are in much more danger from maltreatment, because when you think about it, kids who, say, from the age of zero to three are at much greater risk. As, as any parent knows, they require much more of our attention. When you look at kind of the, the kids who are kind of eligible for adoption or, you know, in, in need of homes, those tend to skew actually toward the older kids, especially, you know, teens. We talk a lot about kids aging out of foster care without ever finding a family. Also kids who are members of sibling groups, it's often harder to find homes for kids who are have a number of siblings or kids who have behavioral or health challenges too, or kids who are often hard to find homes for, and they're a big part of the foster care system too.
1: Yeah. And so, and it seems one of the underlying ideologies that seems to have kids languish in the system is this sort of unbelievably sort of maniacal commitment to family preservation regardless of what the situation might be. And so you pointed at that significantly as an issue, because it seems like there's it's almost like the default, where regardless of the condition, yeah, let's just put the kid back within their biological family. But how often is that actually not the best situation for kids?
0: So I think it's useful to just, you know, offer a little bit of analogy here. I mean, just thinking about kind of the broader category of, say, domestic abuse. You know, If you have a woman and you found that she has been beaten by her husband or boyfriend our first reaction is not how quickly can i get you back together with him right. but that is exactly the question that the child welfare system asks when we find out that a child has been abused or neglected by their biological parent how quickly can we get you back we even ask that question states have policies concerning how to reunify kids with parents who have sexually abused them it's not just you know some some trivial thing here you know This is the driving policy of the child welfare system. And, you know, I think when you look across the political spectrum, I think there's broad agreement that children are best raised by their families, by their mothers and fathers. Generally speaking, I think we would all agree that's true. But these are children in a particular situation. And we need to think about them a little bit differently. Right. The
1: reason that they're in the situation is because the family in which they're in some kind of abuse or neglect has occurred. So it shouldn't yeah. be the logical first place to send kids back to. But is there some scientific evidence like, like what what would what would these leaders of the system say for why family preservation is the default, especially for kids even in this circumstance?
0: Well, I think what you hear a lot from people who believe strongly in family preservation and quick family reunification is that they believe that kids are traumatized by the foster care system. It's very hard, as we know, we've talked about trauma a lot on this program. It's very hard to sort out where exactly trauma comes from in a kid. But I think it's important to understand that these are kids who've already been traumatized. That is why they're in the child welfare system. So to blame all the problems that they have, all the poor outcomes that they may have later in life on foster care, I think is extremely unfair and inaccurate. You often hear cases, you know, in, in the headlines of a child who has been abused in the foster care system or something like that. But the likelihood that a child will be re-abused by their biological parent after replacing them with that parent is much higher than the child would be abused in the foster care system. So I, I just don't think that we are properly understanding where the trauma that kids are experiencing is coming from. They have often experienced months, if not years of abuse or neglect before they were even reported, let alone removed from their homes.
1: And, you know, language is so important. So you've said a couple of times abuse and neglect and even the word neglect. It actually sounds a little benign. Break that down for us. What's behind usually when we say neglect, what's actually happening in terms of what's happening with kids?
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that, because I think when people like the the word that we most often hear before the word neglect is benign. And so it's interesting. I think people make that connection in their head. They think that neglect is something that's not very serious. It is. Most neglect in this country is driven and involves substance abuse on the part of parents. Neglect in these cases can mean a whole variety of things. It can mean that a child is living in a home with no heat or electricity or running water. It can mean that a child is sent out in the middle of winter without adequate clothing. It can mean that a child is not being properly fed. It can mean that a child, especially a young child, is not being properly supervised. And again, you know, this is something that we've talked about. You know, kids under the age of three, we are both parents. We understand what kind of constant supervision kids at that mobile but totally irrational stage need. You can't let them run out the front door or swallow Legos or touch a hot stove or stay in the bathtub or any of these things. And we have trouble trying to do all those things (laughs) while we're totally sober and trying
1: to do those things. And and partner and have a partner and have a partner.
0: Yes. And trying to do all those things and ensure the safety of a child and the proper supervision of a child while you have, say, an alcohol or drug abuse problem is really difficult. And that is why those are the children who are most likely to die from maltreatment, frankly, kids in the zero to three age, and they are most likely to die as a result of neglect. I think people in their minds have this idea of the child welfare system of kids being reported because, you know, someone's beating them with a belt. But many more times over, the problem is much more about neglect and making sure that kids are properly supervised because those are the things that put them in really severe danger.
1: Well, I know we're going to come to recommendations soon, but I know one of the things that you advise is that we should have further breakdowns of things like neglect. So things like drug usage or substance abuse are more clear, because it seems like if we had better tracking of that kind of information, it might make it more clear that family preservation may not be the situation if you had more specificity on, again, why the kids are in this condition in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think everyone in the system needs more transparency about what is happening with these kids. And that includes the public. I mean, I think the public has a lot of misconceptions about why children are being removed from their homes. I think parents, biological parents, often just, you know, don't don't quite understand what it is that that went wrong. I think you have advocates out there who are pretending that neglect is really just a matter of, you know, oh, you let your nine-year-old walk to the park by themselves. That is not what we're talking about.
1: That's what I was saying. Neglect seems almost benign. It feels like that, as opposed to substance abuse. As you say, there's a wide range of what this word can mean. Yeah.
0: I just think we need more transparency. I think when caseworkers go visit families, I think they should be forced to pick categories other than just neglect in order to describe exactly the situation it is that they're seeing and exactly the reason why it is that the child has been removed. And also to give parents a sense of what would need to be changed in order for that child to be returned to the home. You know, if, you you know, you the caseworker is reporting, I see drug paraphernalia everywhere and signs that the parent was impaired. The judge and the court and the caseworker and the parent all know what has to change for that child to come back.
1: Right. So you said a, a number earlier that about a quarter of kids in foster care are eligible to be adopted. Which, yes. which, which I assume means three quarters are not eligible to be adopted. And so they're in the system. Yes. What's yes. happening to them during this time where they're not actually eligible to be adopted?
0: So a lot of times they're, they experience multiple placements. So they could experience multiple foster homes, you know, some for as short as a day or two, some for as long as, you know, three or four years at a time. You know, you have some kids who are in congregate care, that is group home settings, you know, some kids are being cared for in great homes and some kids are being cared for by foster families who are really not the kind of families we should allow to be caring for kids. I mean, I have spoken with a lot of foster families across the country over the last few years, and I've been really impressed with many of them. But I remember one father in New Orleans said to me, you know, he wasn't he didn't really want to do foster care. His wife did. And she encouraged him to go to the first kind of introductory meeting to understand more about foster care. And he said he was so horrified by what the questions were that the other people at that meeting were asking that he felt an obligation that he and his wife should do foster care as a result. So the questions other people were asking included, do I have to keep foster kids in the same part of my home as my regular kids? And a lot of the questions were just about money. How much will I get paid for this kid, for that kid? Will it be a multiple or just an add-on? And I think we we really need to re-recruiting a different caliber of foster families. But that gives you a sense of kind of the broad range of where these kids could be placed.
1: And is the underlying premise for the length of time that these kids, again, the kids that are not yet eligible, is this sort of a waiting period until the biological parents get their act together?
0: Well, we have a, a law on the books. It's called the Adoption and Safe Families Act which was passed in the 90s, it was a bipartisan coalition in Congress that passed this law because kids were languishing in foster care. And they said, if a kid has been in care for 15 of the past 22 months, then the state is supposed to move to terminate parental rights, meaning that they will become eligible after that for adoption. States routinely flout this rule. I mean, the number of families that I have talked to, I mean, first of all, the average amount of time that kids spend in foster care is about 20 months. So we're you're all you're already, you know, sort of skirting that with that number. But the number of families I've spoken to who have had foster kids in their care for three, four, even five years at a time, who are remaining in this kind of limbo where they can never achieve the kind of permanent, stable, loving home that I think all children deserve. It's just, it's outrageous and i think what happens is we want to give the adults who are you know supposed to be caring for these kids the biological parents the family we want to give them more chances i mean who could not want to give yep. them more chances you know you have a mother who you know has a substance abuse maybe a problem maybe her baby was born substance exposed you say to her okay well you need to clean up your act if you want to be able to keep this kid and you know the mother tries as we know you know drug rehab we should give people as many chances as possible to get clean. The question here is, how long should that child have to wait? If the mother takes three years to clean up her act, should the first three years of a child's life just be spent going back and forth in and out of her home, in and out of other foster homes, not being able to form what we know is so important, which is a secure attachment with an adult?
1: So in your book, you start, the introduction is putting adults first, and then you end it with putting children first. And this sounds like it's an interesting manifestation of that, where it that sounds like a putting adults first approach versus putting the child's needs first.
0: Yeah, we absolutely, I think our child welfare system right now revolves around the needs of adults. And we feel very badly for these people. And there's no reason why we shouldn't. I mean, they have experienced poverty and discrimination. And many of them have been in the foster care system when they were growing up. They have experienced, you know, loss and abuse and all sorts of things. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is what do we do with that sympathy and that empathy? Is the answer that we make sure their children stay with them because we feel bad for the adults? Or is the answer, we need to give these children the childhood and the future that they deserve, because otherwise they're going to end up another generation of kids that we just, you know, turn into adults that we feel bad for. That's the fundamental question we have to ask ourselves. It's not an easy question to answer. I mean, and and there's every reason to understand not trying to, you know, make excuses for people abusing and neglecting their kids. But many of these people, you know, they just they, they're unable to care for their kids. They have mental health issues. They don't know what it's like to be raised in a stable family. And so we have to ask ourselves not, you know, whether to feel bad for them. You can definitely feel bad for them. The question is, what do you do with your their kids as a result?
1: Yeah, I mean, the sort of weird tension here, though, is that we're saying that biological parents, again, there's a reason that these kids are being placed in foster care in the first place. But we're also saying that the foster care situations that they may be placed in aren't optimal either. And so that may be some perverse rationale for why family reunification is considered the optimal thing, because you're choosing the least of two evils. Is that kind of what what is at the heart of some of this thinking?
0: I think that's probably true. I mean, there are lots of people who talk about, you know, everybody's favorite phrase now lived experience. They talk about their lived experience in foster care and and why they didn't like it and why it was a problem. And many of these young people who talk about what what it was like in foster care, you know, they imagine that it would have been better if they had just been left with their parents. And I don't blame them for imagining that, but it is a kind of thought experiment that we can look at and play out with real numbers. So we know how much less likely they were to be abused in the foster care system than if they had been reunified with their parents. I mean, we even know there was a recent study that came out that looked at just infants from zero to one in California, a huge cohort of kids. And they found that of kids who had just had a a single report of maltreatment, this didn't even have to be substantiated. Somebody picked up the phone and called and said, I'm worried about this infant. Those infants were 77% more likely to die from maltreatment from a medical death than other kids were. So we know something is really wrong in these homes, and it's not just trivial or frivolous reports of maltreatment. And so I think what's happening here is that it's true. I have lots of recommendations in the book for how we can improve foster care and how we can make their experiences, if they have to go into the foster care system, much better. But I still think in many of these cases, it will be better for them to be in the foster care system than to be immediately reunified.
1: Right. Okay. So before we get to the recommendations, I've deliberately avoided the issue of race because I wanted to highlight the fact that these are issues for kids of all races. But that said, you even talk about racial activists playing a role here. How does the issue of race overlay an even further level of complexity in terms of determining what's best for kids, whether it's kids of Native American heritage, Black kids, How do those complicate things?
0: So there's a lot of talk about racial disparities in the child welfare system now. Black kids are more likely to be reported to the child welfare system. They're more likely to
1: be removed from their homes. Just from a raw numbers perspective, aren't there far more numbers of white children in the foster care system itself?
0: Definitely. The the foster care system is not like most kids in foster care are Black. It's just disproportionate to their numbers in the population.
1: Yeah, I think it's important just to always emphasize that percentages, maybe, obviously, but there are a lot of white kids that are suffering from the same conditions that we're talking about black kids. okay.
0: but I think what people need to understand about these disparate numbers in the child welfare system is what is driving them. Black children in this country are about twice as likely to be maltreated, either abuse or neglect, as other kids in this country. And actually, black kids are three times as likely to die from maltreatment. That to me, it's really hard to fudge those numbers. It's not someone looks at, you know, this case and is like, oh, you know, I think it's might be a case of some kind of mystery. No, they're they're dying at much higher numbers. And to me, child welfare is supposed to be people don't think about it this way, but it's supposed to be a, a service that we are providing to families and children in need. I was talking to someone recently who offered this really interesting analogy. He said, you know, if you went to St. Louis and you said, okay, we're going to have a program for lead abatement in people's houses. You said, we're going to offer this service where we try to get rid of the lead in your house. Just come to us and sign up and we'll provide this service for you for free. And you looked at the numbers of people who came to you and you found that Black families were much more likely to come to you and say they had lead in their homes. And you said to them, well, we only want a number of Black families that is exactly proportionate to their number in the population, because that's, you know, we, we don't think that there should be a disparate number of it. But that's the point here. You would find a disparate need for lead abatement because you would find Black families who say we're living in particular neighborhoods where there's a higher level of lead. So, it is our job in the child welfare system to serve the needs of the kids. It's not our job to try to make the Excel spreadsheet columns come out even. But that seems to be what is driving policy now. And so, you have an entire not just cohort of activists who want to abolish foster care and who want to end foster care for black children because they think it's racist. That mentality has seeped into our entire system. So, you have caseworkers with that mentality. You have family courts with that mentality. You have entire foster care agencies with that mentality. And you have to ask yourself, are we serving the kids in need or are we just trying to make the adults in the system feel better?
1: Well, just play that out. Give me a living example of how that ideology affects a specific kid where this, this sort of racial ideology manifests itself.
0: So there was a case just in 2019, but it's it's interesting that there was a just a big investigation that came out that was done jointly by the LA Times and UC Berkeley. It was a case of a of a child named Noah Quattro who died just before his fifth birthday at the hands of his parents. There had been numerous signs throughout his childhood that he was being abused, starved, he wasn't growing properly, caseworkers found bruises, relatives reported problems with the family and a caseworker finally got a court order to remove him and that caseworker was accused of racial bias that she only wanted to remove him because she didn't she didn't have the proper cultural sensitivity and a few weeks later unfortunately noah died he was murdered and so i'm not saying every case you know rises to that level but it is a way that we see we can connect the dots we can understand how these policies that are supposedly there to benefit minority families, to make them feel like they're heard, like we're more sensitive to their needs. We are putting those adults ahead of the needs of children.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, Naomi, I mean, there's a whole section that's hopeful and looking forward. And one of the levers we haven't really talked about are faith-based organizations. So let's start talking about recommendations and, and things that can actually make the system better. What's the role of faith communities and faith organizations that could make a real difference here?
0: I think that churches and other faith based organizations have really done the Lord's work (laughs) in the last (laughs) number of years. I mean, they've obviously historically played a very important role in the world of foster care and adoption in this country. But I would say in the last 10 or 15 years, they've really undergone a kind of revolution in how they think about recruiting, training, and supporting foster families. They decided a number of these organizations figured out that just putting up a picture of a kid on the nightly news was not a particularly effective way of recruiting foster families. And so, you know, people went into the pulpit and they said, these are the six kids in our zip code tonight who need homes. And that was a much more urgent plea. And I think it really helped people wrap their heads around how local and how urgent the problem was. The second thing that I think they did, which was really important, is they offered to do a lot of the training that the state usually does. So they're offering all the same information that the state does, but they're offering training sessions at convenient times and convenient places. They're scaffolding that information with more information about understanding trauma, about what their faith says about foster care and adoption. And the final issue that I think is just we cannot overstate how important it is, is the support of foster families. It is really hard to be a foster family. Half of them quit within the first year. It is such a toll on your marriage, on your finances. These are kids who have experienced a lot of trauma, and it is not just like raising the other three kids that you've had in your home. And so what these churches did is they really said, if you want to come foster with us, you should bring friends of yours along on this journey. People who will help you by babysitting, carpooling, bringing you meals, praying for you, frankly. And that was so important. If you talk to these families, they feel so supported. And they're supported not just by people who say, let me know if you need anything, which we all do, but people who understand what they have undertaken, who many of whom have been through the same training themselves, so they can understand the way foster child might behave. Many of these churches have actually become what they call foster friendly. So It's not uncommon for other people to understand what it's like to have a child who's been traumatized, who might have outbursts in the middle of church services, and people will not look at you like, this is your fault, and why aren't you doing anything to quiet down that child? When you take them into the babysitting services of that church, there's someone there who understands what it's like to have a foster child that you're caring for. So I think those three things are kind of like pillars that these organizations have adopted. And it's just, it's completely transformed the way their communities do foster care.
1: It's interesting in the last few weeks, as you might imagine, there are several churches in our community that are actively recruiting families to take in refugees from Afghanistan. And there's a, there's a whole sort of communal reverence for everyone that does it and the supports that are coming. And you wonder, wow, I wonder if, if that became more normed. But Mm -hmm. just for kids in foster care or kids, you know, so it's really powerful. And there is something, I think, with the spiritual faith commitment that makes it stronger and more enduring than a a system that is making decisions based on things like family reunification first, as opposed to the, the, the real resources that can be provided. Well, one of the things that you talk about is the selection of foster families themselves, that they aren't necessarily the best equipped or trained. But one of the challenges is that the prospective families, middle-class families, may not see themselves as foster families. What are the kinds of things in the book that you talk about to encourage more prospective families or people who may not see themselves as foster care families, but, but want to grow their family, even if it's temporarily? What are the structures we should have in our society to make that more rewarding experience for people?
0: It's interesting I think that there is kind of a cultural divide here going on where you and I live in the Northeast, foster care is really it's just not not something people talk a lot about I think or think a lot about in other parts of the country, I think in probably countries parts of the country with the larger presence of churches and especially mega churches frankly, I think people talk about it more. but I think that if we want to think about policies that will allow us to better recruit foster families, we should be listening to what these foster families say one of the things that they say very often is that it's not the child who presents the biggest challenge to them it is the system they are treated so badly by these child welfare agencies i mean for all intents and purposes these people are volunteers i mean they they get some you know stipend you know for helping to pay for the the needs of a child but it is a very small amount of money and When you ask, you know, middle class families like what is going right and wrong about your foster care experience, they are treated like glorified babysitters. I mean, caseworkers drop off kids without telling them anything about, you know, whether this child even has medical conditions, allergies, whether this child has experienced sexual abuse in another home and now you're putting them into your home with your children. I mean, it's not that people will not ever take on that challenge but how can we not be transparent with them about what they're taking on? When it comes to issues in court, in family court, foster parents routinely are silenced. No one is interested in their opinion, despite the fact that they take care of these children 24 seven. Some caseworker who shows up once a month testifies, and if a foster parent tries to speak up, even though it is a legal requirement that we allow foster families to be able to testify at these hearings in most states, The judges just say they're not interested. They think, oh, all foster families are just going to say things because they really want to secretly adopt the child. And so they'll say terrible things about the biological parents. That's not true. Most of these these parents are very good at observing things like when the child comes back from a visit with their biological parents, how do they feel? What do they talk about? How could we not be interested in what the foster families have to say about their experience?
1: So one of the things that, I think we, we have to talk about is, you know, over the last several decades, as you know, the non-marital birth rate has significantly increased across all races. But as you say, particularly in the Black community, it's significantly higher. What's the role of trying to revitalize marriage or or reduce the number of, of kids born outside of marriage? How does that, how should that play in all of this, in a sense, to hopefully reduce the number of kids that are going into a foster care situation in the first place or being born into unstable households from the start?
0: Well, as we know, marriage is a protective factor for kids. It protects them in all sorts of ways, but one of the most basic ways it protects them is it makes them much more likely to be subject to maltreatment. A child living in a home with a mother and a non-relative male is about 10 times as likely to experience abuse as a child living with two married parents. And there's just no way around that problem. So I I absolutely think that that needs to be part of the conversation because again, it explains a lot of the racial disparities in maltreatment because marriage is not distributed evenly in this country. Maltreatment is not distributed evenly in this country. And so foster care is not distributed evenly in this country. There's a very clear line among these factors. But I think that as conservatives, we need to take a number of different approaches to this problem. And obviously, on the front end, I think, you know, we have been talking for decades about the marriage issue. And one of the reasons that I started writing about child welfare and thinking about child welfare was I found that to be an unsatisfactory response. Not that it's not totally true that marriage would do an enormous amount to help these kids and to prevent some of them from being maltreated and going into foster care. It's just that I think it's an insufficient response. I think we also need to take on what is going on right now. What are we doing about the 800,000 reports of maltreatment a year? What are we doing about the 440,000 kids who are in foster care right now? What is our broken windows approach to child welfare? How do we fix these problems? Because we can't just rewind and put these kids in married homes before they're born.
1: We have to do something else. And so in closing, are there any final recommendations that you'd like to highlight in addition to obviously getting more families to go through the proper kind of training, faith-based institutions? Are there any other significant recommendations you want to close with? And then I'd love for you to to make your final close about the final chapter, putting children first, because that seems to be If we were to really reorient ourselves around that fundamental premise, all of this could change.
0: So I think the recommendations are really there across the board. I think at the front end of the system, we should be using predictive analytics to better understand which kids are most at risk. I think we should be training caseworkers better to better understand what's going on in a home and when kids are really in danger. I think at the level of family court, we need to be enforcing timelines and ensuring that kids are not languishing in foster care as our laws have prescribed. I think we need to ensure that there is no discrimination going on in the system and that Black kids have every opportunity to be placed in homes for foster care and adoption that white kids have in order to make sure that they too are safe. I think when it comes to civil society, we need to encourage more middle-class families to all kinds of middle-class families to foster and adopt. I mean, we we haven't really talked much about it, but there's a big controversy in this country over whether a, an adoption agency should be able to say we won't place with gay couples. My attitude is there should be adoption agencies out there for everyone. We should have, let a, a thousand flowers bloom. And if you want to have a gay adoption agency and a Catholic adoption agency and an evangelical adoption agency, I think they should all be allowed to operate and flourish as long as they are finding safe, loving, permanent homes for kids. And that really is what the book is about. It is about reorienting our system around the needs of children and sort of saying, okay, adults, we understand your connections with kids, the importance of the role that you play in children's lives, but we need to look at a child's best interest first. And that goes, again, from the beginning of the system when they may be reported for maltreatment to the end of the system when they are either reunified with their family or their place for adoption. We need to think about the early years as vital years of, of connection, of secure attachment, and not just throw those away as we, you know, send child, a child shuttling back and forth to different foster homes. Adult sensibilities just have to take a backseat here.
1: Naomi Shaper Riley, you have written an inspiring and important book, No Way to Treat a Child. And it's going to be available on October 5th. It's really important. Thank you for writing in. Thank you for making this your focus for not just this book for a long, long time. And I really hope it changes, fundamentally changes how we as adults think about creating better environments for kids by changing the way we think about these things to focus on kids in the first place. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ian. This has been great. I really appreciate it. And I do hope people will check out the book. And in the meantime, they can also check out more podcasts from us. You can get Are You Kidding Me? <laughs> on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts and please feel free to send in suggestions for future topics. And here's a little hint of things to come. Ian has also just completed a book manuscript. So <laughs> in a few months, we'll reverse the roles and oh, I will the ask you questions.
1: Yeah. Thanks right. everyone. Thank you. <laughs>